0: heaven no it's iowa jesus that's terrible
1: hey don't worry don't worry I, i got i got a lot of other girls lined up here's some other ones here all right you go Ben, what cat did
0: you strangle to get that?
1: Ah, get out of here. I don't know. Find me a better scream. You mean you didn't dub that? No, I didn't dub it. We've been using the same scream for years. All right, let's hear
0: one more. (laughs) That's a good scream. It's a good scream. We're talking blowout on the Pot of Dreams.
2: It began with a sound that no one was ever supposed to hear. Yes, he says he pulled the girl out of the car. I would like you to forget about her. <laughs> yeah, that's what I heard just before the tire blew out. You're right,
1: it was a shot.
0: He recorded a murder.
2: They say it never happened. There's still loose ends, witnesses. The girl, I've decided to terminate her, terminate her, terminate her. Palma's Blowout. Now you hear it. Now you don't.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, thank you everybody for listening. Welcome to the Pod of Dreams. Uh, Today, our episode on Blowout, we're joined by a very special guest, Chris Hewitt from the Minneapolis Star Tribune, uh, entertainment critic, Rotten Tomatoes approved top critic. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining.
2: Thank you. I'm delighted to join you.
0: Absolutely. So Uh, If you you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your work, kind of what you do for the Star Tribune, how long you've been writing reviews.
2: I have been, uh, I guess you could say, a full-time critic since 93, so for a long time. Uh, I think the first movie I reviewed was uh, The Pelican Brief, and that was for the Pioneer Press in St. Paul, which hired me in 93, Um, And I was there until about five years ago when I uh, moved to the Star Tribune in Minneapolis and began writing about theater, which had always been an interest too. And uh, at the time, the Star Tribune had a a movie critic, but uh, after a couple of years, that was no longer the case. So I took over just usually one review a week, Uh, sometimes, I guess, in the summer and Christmas I've done. Quite a few more than that because there are so many to write about, but basically one a week and the occasional feature if a movie shoots here or something like that.
1: And do they, so you work for the Star Tribune, do they tell you what movie you have to review? Are they like, hey, we got to have a review of the new Marvel movie because that's what people want to re- review or read, rather? Or do you get some say?
2: I would say I decide uh, in collaboration with my editor, but there definitely are a fair amount of them that it just is pretty much, I mean, like, of course I was going to write about Jurassic park dominion this week. Sure. And of course I'm doing, um, light year next week. So some of them are pretty much slam dunks, but every once in a while, there's a week where there isn't, you know, an obvious blockbuster or the blockbuster in quotation marks. It doesn't seem very interesting. So I'll do something else. Uh, I guess I did Fire Island for June 3rd, in fact, and that is a slightly more off the beaten path. Sure. So, yeah.
0: So I, I got to ask, you worked in St. Paul, Minneapolis. St. Paul's the superior city, right? Is that <laughs> correct? Am I correct in saying that? Or. Oh, boy, I don't know. Is, <laughs> uh, is, is I'm from St. Paul, so that's why that's why. I brought ah, okay.
1: Me. And I used to live in Minneapolis, and I, I loved the Minneapolis-St. Paul feud. It was very, very fun, The both sides of that i'm not from minnesota originally so i was going to try to spin this the other way oh you went to the star tribune because you realized minneapolis is superior to st paul and that's why you left the pioneer press but you don't have to have an official opinion on the record. Yeah, we don't want
2: you to isolate your audience it's, it's okay i mean i've worked in both i've always actually lived in minneapolis but i like them both they complement each other nicely how about that
0: that's fair that's very political um I had a quick question. So Rotten Tomatoes, you're Rotten Tomatoes approved critic. If you go on Rotten Tomatoes, we see your reviews. You're listed as a top critic, which I think is pretty cool. There's like a special category you can read just top critics. Do you know, like, how did did that come to be? How did you become a top critic? Was it something you had anything
2: to do with? The whole thing is very mysterious. I had nothing to do with it. For a long time, I remember uh, thinking, gosh, I wonder why I'm not – a Rotten Tomatoes, Top Critic, because when I was at the Pioneer Press, I reviewed literally everything that opened. So sometimes, you know, seven, eight movies a week. Wow. Okay. And I always kind of felt like I doubt if there are too many people who are doing that. And and at the time I was not uh, listed as a Top Critic, but then mysteriously somehow I was, it may have had to do with moving to the Star Dream, which is a bigger paper uh-huh. or actually, no, I think it happened before that. Um, and periodically, really the only contact I have with Rotten Tomatoes, and this is actually kind of good, is that they're fairly rigorous about the, uh, I don't know even what you call the hit or miss uh, icons that they use, the splatted tomato and the fresh tomato. Oh, that's what it is, fresh or rotten. Yeah. Um, every once yeah. in a while, if they really review and they're uh, like, it's somewhere on the borderline and they're unclear about which it should be listed as, They'll shoot me an email and say, "Hey, is this that or that?" Uh, which is nice because uh, it feels like they're paying attention anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're yeah. in such select company, like the A.O. Scotts and the Peter Travers and the Richard Roperts, Like that, you're up and with that group. It's pretty impressive.
2: I was super impressed to see that. It may be longevity is what got me there.
1: <laughs> well, so yeah, I guess here's you've been reviewing movies for a long time, which frankly is the dream, and I'm very jealous. Um, True. You've, you've seen a lot of movies. You saw a lot of movies that came out long ago. Have you ever had a review where you've come back later and you think, oh, man, I kind of got that wrong or I missed that? Are there any ones where you've had second thoughts in retrospect? Like, okay, now revisiting this, I'm wrong. I know, like, Roger Ebert famously was uh, Blue Velvet. He he didn't like it at first and then he really came around eventually. Any of those that you've had?
2: I haven't had anything as dramatic as that. I'm sure I've had some where... Like, you know, over time I would maybe think I could have given it a half or a star more than I did. Um, I do have a somewhat similar story in that vein, uh, which was a little bit of a dilemma I had when I was writing a review, and this is quite a while ago, Uh, I would guess mm, late 90s. There was a movie called, I think it was called The Wedding Gift. It was a kind of small British movie. It starred Julie Walters. who played a woman who I want to say has ALS and the, the titular wedding gift is that she wants to live and be healthy long enough to walk her son down the aisle at his wedding. So they did a screening of it like three weeks or so before it was going to open here. And I went and did not like it at all. I thought it was, you know, basically just the disease of the week movie that my description just now made it sound like it was and it seemed cliched, and, uh, you know, the acting was, was fine or whatever, but I just did not like it at all. Weirdly, there ended up being another screening of the movie, and my sister happened to be visiting when the second screening happened, and she was interested in it. So although I'd already seen it, we went to it, and it was the rare, in fact, maybe only time I've ever seen a movie twice before it came out. Oh, yeah. Second time, loved it probably because I was familiar with all of the things that I thought were wrong with it. And I could kind of set them aside and concentrate on the fact that Julie Walters is genuinely great in the movie. And it actually does have some really smartly observed moments along the way. And anyway, I, I, I was able to see the stuff that worked the second time that I had not necessarily attended to the first time. And then I really had a dilemma when I wrote my review. Cause what do I say? Go to it once. You'll hate it. Then go again. <laughs> you'll love it. Um, And I can't even remember how I solved that dilemma. I think I did fess up that I had seen it twice and had very differing reactions. But uh, so that does make me wonder if there might be times when a a revisiting of a movie would make me like it more or potentially less. But um, for the most part, it makes sense to review based on seeing a movie once because that's the experience that that readers and viewers are going to have anyway.
1: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I, I do like the concept that you're inoculated to kind of the stuff that didn't work the second time then you can kind of enjoy the parts that do a little bit more focus
2: on them. that's really anyway, interesting. that's my story and I'm sticking to it.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Um, So, yeah, I was reading your summer movie preview and this is an aside. I I can't remember the last time I was this excited for a group of summer movies. And I think some of this is just pandemic theater withdrawal. Sure. Uh, and I, you know, little kids, so I don't get to go out to the theater all that much, but it was a gobsmacked and I was just kind of looking and getting, getting hyped from trailers and then you know, reading it. And then you made a claim that, I, I loved, it was super fascinating, you said Mad Max Fury Road is the best movie of the 21st century, and I'm certainly not trying to get you to account for every position you ever had, but this it's my favorite action movie of the 21st century, but you think there's not been a better movie made in the 21st century than Mad Max Fury Road, is that?
2: I mean, I will entertain candidates if you have some, but yeah, I sure can't think of one. Uh, I think I did at some point for the paper a list maybe of the maybe this would have been in 2020 when we were looking back at a couple of decades or something, a, a list of, I don't know, the 10 best movies of the of the century so far. Sure. And yeah, it, to me at least that was the pretty clear, just, you know, the craft of it and how exciting it is and how innovative it feels, despite the fact that it's a sequel and, you know, he probably, George Miller probably could have phoned it in. I just think s- as pure cinema, that movie is uh, a masterpiece.
0: I mean, it's funny, because we have so many legacy sequels now, like Top Gun Maverick just came out, and Fury Road was, like, really one of the first ones to do it really well. I think Creed does it really well, but, yeah, I mean, to pick up from a story that's, I don't know, at that point was 20 years old, like, it's such an amazing accomplishment.
2: Are you... And maybe... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say,
0: are you excited for the Furiosa? Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I know they're... I think they're filming it right now, or whatever, but...
2: I am. I mean, it depends a little bit on on what his exact involvement is in it. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, based on that movie alone, I'm definitely going to want to see whatever he comes up with. And I think maybe part of the appeal of uh, the most recent one was that it doesn't it is. I mean, it's a sequel sort of, but it really isn't a sequel. I mean, he kind of pretty much starts from scratch in terms yep. of characters. The vibe is sequelish, I guess, but other than that, it's, it's pretty fresh and, to me, feels it.
1: Oh, yeah, it's very inventive. It's the best action movie of the 21st century. I, I couldn't think of one that I like better than that. I, I mean, I can throw a bunch of movies out that you can shoot down. I mean, I like her quite a lot. I'm certainly a Paul Thomas Anderson fan, and I could pluck some of his movies, but it's great. I mean, everything you've said about it so far, I totally agree. It's not, I've seen it three times, and it's incredibly fun and great to look at. Have oh, you seen the black-and-white version? There's a black-and-white? No, I didn't even know that.
0: Chrome, such a thing. Is it it's, Chrome? Isn't. The Chrome version?
1: Yeah.
2: Um, no, I have not. I guess I'll have to check that out. Yeah, George Miller actually thinks it's better. I don't know if I agree with that, but it's really interesting to watch. It it, it does It makes a huge difference visually. I mean, obviously it does, but those dust storm scenes in particular – pretty cool to watch that way
1: oh yeah so i do think i would miss some of the colors i like the colors and the bizarre guitar oh, yeah. playing that's like ejaculating fire and their rhyme is just like it's a, a wonderfully absurd but also realized and plausible with everything i mean the world building is also great without missing it. it's just awesome but I was, i'm glad i'm glad that you actually meant it i i do respect that yeah you threw that in there and that's your your claim i mean again i love it so any any praise for mad max Fury road I, i'm all for so I, I loved it. I love that movie. And I didn't expect to read a, just a random one-off sentence about how great Mad Max Fury Road was. but <laughs>
2: I Yeah, I was Fury probably Road. trying to be a little uh, uh, rabble-rousing.
1: Oh, sure. Got to do a little bit of that to try to get a little bit of attention. That's just how it goes. But I'm
0: glad you sure. actually met it. But yeah, so he, we're here today to talk, not Fury Road, we're here to talk blowout. <laughs> so uh, I reached out to Chris, asked him to join. He said he would. Said, so pick any movie that you'd like, and you pick Blowout. So why why did you pick this film, the De Palma film, Blowout?
2: Well, I figured it was a movie that you were not apt to have already discussed. Like if I picked, I don't know, Casablanca or The Godfather or whatever, those seemed like ones that you might have already tackled. And also, it is my favorite movie of all time. Um, I uh, there was some meme going around uh, maybe six or eight years ago where People were asked to name their 100 favorite movies in order. Um, And so I did. And, you know, for the top three or four slots, there are certainly a bunch of contenders. But uh, Blowouts, always the movie that springs to mind immediately. I think partly because it came out for me in that period when you're apt to be most passionate about movies. And I I happened to be at the time taking a bunch of film classes. And uh, I was in college at the time. It came out in 1981. So it has lingered with me and I revisit it often and it has held up for me. So it seemed like kind of a slam dunk.
1: I was going to jump in. I've never seen it. I'm really glad you picked it. This is why we, one of the many reasons why we love having guests is I don't know that I would have ever picked it. And I've never seen it before. And I'm really glad I watched it. There's a lot of super interesting stuff going on in it. Um, so no, I'm just, I'm just, all I'm saying is I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, it was a great choice. I've got a weird gaps with Brian De Palma and me. I mean, I've seen a lot of the big stuff. I've seen Carrie, of course. I've seen you know, Scarface. I love Mission Impossible. I was 12 when that came out. But then after that, like, there's just not a lot of, a lot else. I haven't delved into Brian De Palma very much. This is a good reason to do it. It's like homework, but really, really fun homework.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there. For a while, I would have said he was my favorite filmmaker. And I don't know if I'd say that anymore, partly because he's made a couple of duds uh, yeah. lately. but I uh, uh, that period when he was kind of in his golden or imperial or whatever you want to call it phase coincided with when I was in high school and college. And um, so it was always exciting to wait for the next diploma in that period. And it also happened to be when Pauline Kale was still writing for the New Yorker and she was a big fan of his. And I'm sure with she, you know, I read her as a, uh, probably preteen, but definitely teenager, in my orthodontist waiting room. So I'm sure she helped turn me on to his um, skill and what's exciting about the way he makes movies. And she's legendarily a huge blowout fan.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, this movie's the same sort of, Ben. I had seen it before. I think I watched it right in the beginning of the pandemic. I, from what I recall, it was always on a list of movies I wanted to see, and it was hard to get your hands on, like streaming-wise, up until the last maybe two, three years ago. Um, it just wasn't on any of the streamers. He couldn't rent it, I think, for the longest time either. Um, hmm. But, yeah, so this is the second time I'd seen it. Really loved it. Um, had you seen the uh, Ant- Is Antione movie Blow Up before? Because it's it's so, sort of based off of that,
2: correct? Well, it definitely borrows some things from that and from Watergate uh, and really all of those 1970s conspiracy thrillers which happens to probably be my favorite genre of movie too like movies like parallax view and the conversation and all the president's men and three days of the condor it's very much even though it just barely is in the 80s it's very much one of those kind of 70s ish movies and i think all of them probably were influenced by Antonio uh, antonioni too but i like Blowout much more than i like blow up
0: Yeah, I've I've heard Blow Up is more like a photographer, right? Taking pictures and then photographing sort of this murder or or scene that they shouldn't have been viewing. He's doing
2: a a fashion shoot, and he thinks he sees something in the background of one of the images, and we spend kind of most of the movie wondering if that's true or not. In the case of Blow Up, he's recording audio and thinks he hears something, and pretty quickly we know he did, in fact, hear something, and... The story takes off from there. Well,
1: this is, this is a weird observation I'm going to start off with, but so I saw this, and there's a lot going on, and I, I see why a lot of film critics love it because, it, in part, it's very much about movies. I, I mean, I love the the sort of B plot where they're shooting the thriller, um, and they can't find the right scream for this very schlocky, you know, slasher that John Travolta is helping to make. But as I was watching him, you know, literally link the magnetic, you know, try to sync the sound with the image. I was reminded of when I learned, I mean, it's something I should have known a lot earlier in life, but like, oh yeah. Audio is recorded separately from the visual images and they have to be linked and synced together. Remember finding that out. I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Like, oh yeah. And seeing them spliced together, there was just something like magical about it. And I got this weird impulse to split it. Like I want to listen to it without watching it once. And I want to watch it without hearing it. And then rewatch the movie, I got that this weird impulse, and I can't articulate it. I don't have anywhere to go with it. I just that I've never had that impulse with a movie before. Well,
0: and I love how like they talk the sound effects too, because that's such a big part of filmmaking. Where like they aren't capturing all those sounds always, like a door shutting or you know a screech, like that has to be created afterwards and added into the movie. And you know, Travolta has this whole closet full of all these different sound effects that he's built. And yeah, we've used that that wind before. That was the sort of trigger for the whole movie is the director said he didn't like the wind. So Travolta had to go capture wind and that, you know, that has to be created somewhere. Now it's all digital in a, a, you know, computer somewhere, but I love how this movie just has that appreciation for like sound mixing and sound editing and, you know, the build, this whole thriller around it. It's really amazing.
2: Well, and one thing that happens with that movie within a movie thing that Ben is mentioning is that to me is really thrilling is it's, uh, it makes the movie almost like a magic act where the magician is telling you all the way through how he's doing it. And somehow the fact that you know how it's working makes it even more exciting. Cause like the Palma is essentially from the very first thing in the movie, which is a parody of a bad seventies slasher movie. He's saying, okay, here's what, here's the way I'm going to try to manipulate you in this movie just to let you know, I'm going to be doing this, this, and this, and this, and then he does this, 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 and this, and it works. It doesn't matter that you know it's coming. It actually is even more exciting that you knew what was coming and it does come, and it totally dazzles you. Or me, anyway.
0: He's also still, like, making fun of himself a bit, too, with, like, you know, Carrie kind of opens in a really similar way, and you can kind of feel that he's sort of poking fun at that, you know, girls in a locker room, you know, that, that whole, like, slasher kind of genre in, the in most, his own movie. I guess the most yeah, I mean, I story think he was
2: ever. <laughs> like, I, I think he's kind of, you know, at the time he had sort of a reputation and maybe still lingering reputation of being um, a bit of a misogynist, which I do not think is true at all. And of making movies that were violent in order to shock us. And he, I think would always have argued that that was not what he was doing, but in a way with that scene, he's like saying to his critics, okay, here's what you think I do. It's not what I do, but I'll do it to show you that it's not what I do. Yeah. There is something satirical
1: about that opening sequence where like, there's this goofy looking murder. We get one glimpse of in the mirror and nobody seems to notice him. And it's like cartoonish and silly and fabricated. And then we see, you know, the actual movie afterwards. And it is quite a contrast. Like, here's the fake movie you think I'm actually making. Here's the real one. That's a really
2: interesting way of looking at it. And it sets up the real one because the, the problem with that movie, with the the slasher movie, with a movie that we see at the very beginning of the movie, that the movie then addresses is John Travolta, the sound man has to get a better scream for the, the woman in a shower. I think it is who gets stabbed. And then he spends a good chunk of the movie getting that scream and i mean i don't think we want to give way too much here but uh that leads us to and here's another of these pronouncements that you maybe are going to think are too much ben but i think the best ending of any movie ever that oh. that finale is just devastating
1: so no i i don't know if it's the best ever i am always eric knows i'm very reticent of the grandiose camp. i won't necessarily follow you to the- best ever because that's ben, something that really doesn't have the
0: courage and his convictions that you have Chris. I prefer to
1: actually mean what I say. And I don't know if I'd mean it. I, I want to jump on the excitement, but I don't know if I actually mean that. I love the ending though. I'm usually the one that wants the ending to be more cynical and dour. This is this without getting into details kind of delivers that. Um, and I, this is something I've never seen in a movie before really, or maybe I haven't. I don't remember, but when he's in the van or whatever, Driving through the parade. I don't think I've seen anything that's insane. It's like The French Connection, but crazier. You know, we oftentimes see regular people in movies in extraordinary circumstances trying to figure stuff out, and they oftentimes come up on top. But in that moment, he seems to like lose his mind. He has like no plan, and then he just—it's just fantastic. Visually, it's fantastic, and also just—he just doesn't even know what to do, and he just like panics and goes crazy.
2: I mean, it's. And then- in a way, it feels more kind of, I mean, not that there's anything really realistic about the movie, but mm-hmm. it feels kind of more realistic because it's not like that chasing ends in triumph for him. He crashes no, he careens into
1: a storefront. Yeah, it just yeah. it's clear kind of like, what was even his goal? I mean, I know he wants to get
2: to the next station or
1: whatever, but he's got no plan. He doesn't think at all. It's just clear, like terror and panic have overridden his rational brain. and He's just driving insanely. Um, and a scene that looks like incredibly difficult to shoot, right? I mean, this is no CGI. I mean, just, just the orchestration of that, the sequence of shots, him driving through the... I mean, it's just it looks mat- fantastic.
2: Yeah, um, it's that's another very pure... I mean, the whole movie is very purely cinematic, I think. And uh, if I can mention that scene in particular, but honestly, the whole movie is beautifully scored by Pino Donagio. The, the uh, score of the movie, I think can read to people watching it for the first time now is like too much because it is sort of an old-fashioned kind of lush romantic type of score but I love that musical yeah, score. Yeah, when he's and running
0: through the crowd you know, the fireworks are going off like the the score that you hear it it's pretty moving, it really is and you know I mean, I've seen it before so I knew like obviously what was going to happen but it's, it's a perfect like s- score matching the scene.
2: Yeah, that uh, love theme I think that cut is called jack and sally um that love theme is beautiful so i'm trying
1: to figure out how to phrase a question without doing spoilers i don't know if we want to do spoilers but um, i mean the
0: movie's been out since 81 i i think we could probably spoil it right
1: or no You're, you guys call i'm trying yeah. to we out, usually right. get into spoiler territory yeah. um if you haven't okay. seen the movie go see it but yeah we're, we're very, uh, yeah, not to get to our letter by, but it's, it's very AM, much it's on worth watching you, you won't be bored um there's a lot of great things going on in the movie. Um, I guess here's just a motif. This is me. So for you, Chris, as somebody who's seen this movie a lot and and I don't have time to really get into a shot, but like one of the things I didn't expect in this movie was there's a lot of shots of like the, and it's shot in Philadelphia. You see Benjamin Franklin all the time and it's, you know, celebrating uh, whatever it is, the 4th of July or whatever it is, or the Liberty Bell is what they're celebrating. And there's this, there's a critique I can't quite lay my finger on, but we're seeing a lot of like, yeah, here's the source of the founding fathers, and the creation of a country, but then it's slimy and gritty and miserable because what drives the plot is we have a, somebody that works for a politician essentially murders another politician. And there's something about the grime and the nastiness contrasted with this celebratory images of the founding of a nation, which really worked for me seem to like linger on Benjamin Franklin and this, this sort of concept. And I don't know if you think there's anything there, if that's something you've thought about in more detail, but
2: I do. I mean, one time when I watched it and I've probably seen it, I don't know, 30 times by now, but one time when I watched it, I watched it specifically to see if De Palma includes red, white, and blue in every single shot in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's not always like the true red of the flag, for instance, but I think red, white, and blue is literally in every shot in the movie. And that to me is kind of underscoring that connection to those Watergate influenced conspiracy thrillers, this idea that, you know, we think we live in the land of Liberty, the Philadelphia city of Liberty. um, And in fact, there's this kind of shadow government behind the scenes that we are only dimly or not at all aware of that is calling a lot of the shots for us. And the little guy who tries to do the right thing ends up uh, paying for it.
0: Yeah, I think the movie's, you know, over, overwhelmingly political. There's there's all of those. I mean, it's a, he's a candidate for president that gets killed. And, I mean, the Chappaquiddick stuff, too, like, that, that was always in the back of my mind, too. It was like, wow, that's so much like the Ted Kennedy situation, basically recreating it in this movie, although it's kind of flipped in this version because Travolta saves um, – Uh, nancy allen right but yeah i think there's all those political undertones throughout the whole movie i don't think he's subtle about it really either
2: no and we haven't mentioned uh john lithgow yet but that performance as kind of the i don't know g gordon leader or whatever operative who's behind the scenes is so good He has
0: lost his mind. Lithgow – so, like, I remember Lithgow from Third Rock – or, yeah, Third Rock from the Sun, like, as the dad. I mean, I know he was the bad guy in, like, Cliffhanger, but seeing
1: him in this movie is like – he's a lunatic.
0: He's, like, psychotic in this movie. It's insane.
1: Well, yes. He's got a lot of different notes. In season four of Dexter, which is the last season of Dexter worth watching, he plays a serial killer. And he's really scary and good there. So I've seen him hit this kind of notes before, but yes.
0: Ricochet, too, that's the Denzel Washington movie. If you've seen that, he's off his rocker in that, too. But this movie, he is insane.
2: And he's even more bananas in another Brian De Palma movie, Raising Cain, which is really underrated and totally worth seeing. Um, But, yeah, the scene in this movie where – so he plays this guy who's – unclear who he's connected to in the government, or if in fact, he's just sort of become a lone wolf who's doing whatever he wants to do, but he's somehow connected to this assassination of a politician that John Travolta is investigating. And that scene where he's on the phone pretending to be distraught. And yet his face is completely impassive oh, yeah. uh, because he is a sort of a monster who doesn't really have any emotional connection, anything that's going on, apparently is just so beautifully done. It's almost like he's acting two characters at once.
0: Yeah, he's one hand admitting to be a serial killer that he killed this woman, and at the other hand, he's like watching Travolta as like this sort of operative. It's yeah, it's really amazing.
1: And he is a full-on sociopath. I mean, his plan is—he was basically going rogue, and he's got to do. So he had to kill the presidential candidate. He had to and then also kill two other women who aren't Nancy Allen to create this MO so that it would look like Nancy Allen was just killed by this guy who was an MO, which is a really elaborate, ridiculous plan, really. So it's kind of like, hey, yeah, he just wanted to do this. Really, he just needed an excuse to to do this because nobody else wanted him to do this. They shot down his plan and it's just full on crazy.
2: Well, the other thing is he's kind of the classic. It's maybe sometimes scarier not to tell us why. Character too, because I don't think sure. he ever expresses any political views, and we don't really have a sense that he's doing this because he believes strongly in anything. He just right. this is his job, and so he does all this awful stuff.
0: He's Michael Myers, right? He's just killing right. people, you know, for for really no reason. Um, so we we talked about her uh, Nancy Allen, right? She is actually my least favorite part of this movie. I I, really yeah oh I, yeah I oh, it's john
1: travolta by a oh, mile I, nancy
0: um, allen i i don't know again maybe this is just me maybe i'm missing it but boy does she like seem un, like a not a real person in this movie the way she talks everything she does oh boy they put the makeup on like she i feel like just, a movie character yeah that's fine that's just me i don't maybe i'm wrong chris it sounds like maybe you disagree.
2: I do disagree. I would agree with you that she really swings for the the fences and the performance as this kind of, you know, naive, uh, probably not super smart or at least not super educated woman who gets sort of wrapped up in all this. But I I don't know. I think the choices she makes are really, really interesting. And and, uh, particularly when we, you know, get to the ending of the movie and know her fate, make her innocence uh, even more moving and... Um, I have have a bigger impact because she has gone so big, but I can see what you're saying. It's 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 a lot. Like that, that when you when we voice, first
0: see in. her and she's at the hospital and she's kind of dazed. I'm like, is she like, what is wrong? Like, is she drunk? Is she on drugs? Is she just like concussed? I was just like so confused what was going on in her head.
2: I mean, I would say she probably is concussed, and I do think that's part of what's going on in the performance is that she's never really. Treated for whatever happened to her when she almost died um but yeah yeah
1: i wasn't sure if she like the character was pretending to be dumb a la like a Marilyn monroe character i got that vibe at first and then it turns out no she just really didn't get it by the end and it took her a long time to realize even she was in danger um you know she goes a long way with john lithgow on the train before she it clicks like okay this is this is horribly wrong um so that was I was a little unsure at first, but if we're gonna talk performances, I, I don't love John Travolta.
0: Oh, I um, completely disagree with you. He's I think he's amazing in this movie. He's I like a not, movie star. Uh,
2: i agree with
1: you. Oh, see, I I, I had trouble buying. He's this sound tech nerd. I, I think he's too much of a star. I see him and think, you know, I think of Grease and I think of you know Saturday Night Fever and I think, man, I don't buy you as this just tech nerd who is pulling things apart and putting them back together and learning sound from the ground up. I, we,
0: we literally see him do it. I mean, he's, he's doing the skill, which I think is so cool. Cause we're watching him do this insanely difficult skill. And it's, I believe every second of it.
1: So can what, point me to the scene where he's actually doing it. Him being John Travolta um, is the, actually doing the whole process.
0: When you, the credits roll when we're in his sound room and he's cutting all the sound together, we're watching him build this, the sound sequence for the movie
2: there's that you're talking about the scene where he assembles essentially almost like a subruder film of the crash. Right. And there's also the scene earlier in the movie where he actually goes out and gets the recording, which I think is so amazingly shot with the split diopters and split screen stuff where he's using the microphone to kind of direct the sound and point to where the sound is. And you kind of see to me, at least on his face, his instinct for how sound works and, and, uh, I don't know. I think I think De Palma does a great job of setting up that that he's an expert in this field. That we yeah. Don't the problem really isn't play. the direction,
1: and it's not De Palma. and maybe it's just me and me knowing who John Travolta is. I never bought him as the character. I, I guess I didn't see a scene where it was literally John Travolta's body carefully doing all the steps. I mean, we see hands doing steps all the time. When he goes in uh, the
0: animation room and he builds the, you know, takes the pictures and he turns each shot and then has the audio matchup. That's like, you're watching him do it. I, I don't know. I believe that was it actually
1: him. Oh, cause I, I, I don't know. I guess I assume for all the technical stuff, it wasn't him, but I wasn't paying enough attention. And it's entirely possible that they're like, Hey, here's how to do it. And here so to do you're, to do. They you're saying how to a do?
0: sound guy wouldn't be that good looking and that charismatic. Is that the problem? And I also didn't
1: believe the emotions. I mean, I guess I don't think Travolta's is that great of an actor. I mean, I know Quentin oh. loves him. I don't love John Travolta as an actor nearly that much. I just don't, I don't feel sold him as the character i feel like he's a guy reading lines somewhat convincingly but you know i just was never fully like oh yeah that's a sound guy that's a guy who really knows how to put together wires and mic things up and mix the sound in and pull the do the foley artist stuff or pull i never quite got all that
2: that's well me. The, mo- me the movie also shows him in a flashback as a guy who didn't know how to do all that stuff and learned a really tough lesson as a result of that sure um so we might have to agree to disagree. on no, Oh, it's or. fine.
1: And, and it's not, I mean, to me, I think you could have put a lot of different people in that role and it would have worked just as well because direction is so good. I mean, this is absolutely a John Travolta problem and maybe just a Ben Lewis problem and not a, well, so not a real problem.
0: Chris, you mentioned, is it the split Doppler? Because that's like a De Palma signature, right? Like where he's r- recording and you see the owl in like the foreground and, you, and then you see Travolta. It's, oh man, I love the way that that looks. So is that what the split Doppler?
2: Split diopter, it's called. Yeah, it's where two things that should not really be in focus are shot separately and then edited together to look like they're in the same frame. He does it a lot. Um, Femme Fatale is probably the movie where he does it the most. Another underrated Brian De Palma movie, by the way. Um, But yeah, he does that a lot, and he also does split screen a lot. He does all of the tricks in this movie, basically. The other thing we haven't talked about is the amazing scene when Travolta... Uh, the bad guys have erased all of the stuff in his studio and he goes back to the studio and the camera does a 360 for I don't know how long it is, but somehow it's so carefully choreographed that we see everything we need to see while the camera's spinning around and around in this room and uh, apparently representing the unrest in travolta's mind as he realized that somebody has gotten to him and one and of the coolest
0: up. one of the coolest scenes in movie history I think and then not just this but the sound is also because I have a little surround sound set up you know and uh um, the sound is kind of following where the cameras spin. it it's absolutely incredible
1: you know, there are tons of these just amazing YouTube, YouTube shots. YouTube that scene throughout.
0: if you haven't seen just go you got to re-watch that on YouTube.
1: There's not a single shot in this movie that I don't love. Um, I and mean, then we will go and the camera will move to the ceiling and kind of pull away and look on top. It's such an interesting, weird choice that could be distracting, but it's not. It, it really heightens what happens
2: in a way. Yeah, that, it always feels like there's a reason for it. It's He's not just showing off, although he is showing off. Yeah, but
1: yeah he is. And this is a movie where it, it could easily seem like somebody was over directing. That's in quotes. I don't know if that's a real term. But it is, I mean, it's a, there's a lot going on, but it works really well and it makes the movie better um, instead of Another, just being an annoying distraction. Sorry.
2: Oh, they're My fault. Another thing that I think is really cool and that I don't think I noticed until I watched it a couple of times is, and I love this about uh, the best directors is that De Palma basically announces from the very beginning of the movie, what sort of movie it's going to be, not just with the parody uh slasher film but also i don't know if you guys noticed the very very brief opening credit sequence where there's like a, i don't know what you call the um the the thing that registers sound uh the uh, decibel level yeah the decibel level yeah. thing yeah there's like the waving back and forth um arm and as it waves back and forth and we hear the decibels the little sound bites we hear almost tell you the entire story of the movie in very brief, like, one or two second little splits.
0: I did not notice uh, that. Definitely did not there's notice that. There's
2: a car crash, that. and there's a Nancy Allen scream, and there's... it's it's uh, He practically distills the movie down into, like, a 15-second audio clip.
0: Yeah, incredible. Um, so, the, the ending, you know, I mean, we can, I guess, spoil it now. We've sort of danced around it, but he's trying to record audio for this horror movie. He doesn't the scream doesn't work. The director doesn't like it. He says he'll get the scream. Nancy Ellen gets killed by Lithgow, and that's the scream that he records and plays it back to the director. The director loves it, and then he, he obviously is tormented by it. Um, I read something on Wikipedia that the ending is, like, one of the things that people hated about it when it was originally released because, like, it's so obviously so dark and depressing. It's not a crowd-pleasing ending. No.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. Well there's just not a lot of movies that end with this, just such a bummer bummer of an ending. It's
2: pretty it's so shocking. cynical. It's wonderful it cynical. It is bleak. I mean it's not just your government is corrupt, you can't do anything about it, the people you love are going to die. Oh And by the way, you're gonna be so apparently dedicated to your job that you can't help but profit from the fact that the people you love have died. And how does he go on from this movie? There could never have been another movie, a blowout sequel.
0: They do they get away with it. You know, I mean that's the other thing, is like you, you see, obviously it's this murder is the person that he was falling for dies, but like the political organization or whoever was behind the murder of a presidential candidate just like got away with it. It's crazy.
2: Yeah, which, you know, potentially has happened. I mean, Teddy Kennedy got away with Chappaquiddick. Yeah, oh no, I don't know. The cynicism is true to life for sure. Um,
1: and I, we mentioned sound, but it's it's such an incredible thing, right? Most of the evidence is audio for John Travolta's character. He's got recordings. He's got to sync it. Um, just the way that sound impacts everything. I, I, I love the moment. John Travolta had this plan that is really harebrained, really, if, if you think about it he wires up Nancy Allen and she's going to go give the tape to the guy she thinks is a newscaster but she doesn't watch the news so she doesn't know who it is and we know it's John Lithgow the sociopath who's doing it he's going to wire her up and then follow her um, if something goes wrong or somebody tries to take it or not acknowledge it and John Lithgow immediately takes her to the subway and takes her across he's going to try to kill her in the subway first then he takes her in the train and takes her somewhere else downtown John Troll starts to realize something's wrong he's sprinting after him It's just like desperate he's trying to get to him and he's getting to the train. The train's about to pull away. We hear him yell, but it's muted because she's in a train. She can't hear him. Just like, oh, the power of sound and communication. It's just gets muted and it's so easy to get wrong. And this is after he's already not been able to get a call from the newscaster because John Lithgow you know, sent the circuit the wrong way or sent a busy signal. However, he did that. I mean, I don't know the exact technical way he did that. It's just such a powerful thing in the movie. It's all about sound and it's, and it's great. Um, I mean, I, I love that that was so crucial. Constantly
2: throughout the movie, and it relates to that earlier scene too, where again De Palma kind of tells us ahead of time what's going on. We see that flashback where Travolta wired up somebody for a, I guess it was an FBI tap of the mob or something, if I remember right. And Travolta screws it up, and the guy ends up dying as a result of it. And then Travolta does it again. Right. He doesn't get redemption though. Dying as a result of it.
1: Yep. You think he's going to get redemption? He's going to do it right this time, and nope. No I mean, he's come. the
2: hero of the movie, but there's certainly a way to read it that he's the bad guy in the movie. It's definitely his fault that Nancy Allen dies.
1: Oh, yeah. He pushes her. She's going to leave town and go lay low for a while, which would have been best for her.
2: Well, and she uses her as bait, too, really.
0: He's like, ah, we'll yeah. strap your thing. We'll catch these people. And
2: yeah. And
0: she ends even up though I've done it before and it
2: hasn't worked, <laughs> right. it's going to work this time. That guy died, too.
0: Uh, that scene. So you mentioned the subway scene reminded me a lot. I guess De Palma must pull from this so like the untouchable scene where they're in the station, you know, and the carriages falling down the steps, a lot like that. And even in Carlito's way, there's the subway scene, you know, he, he really has such a cool way cool way of the like climactic end of the at, third act, you know, that all of those movies have this like really intense climax that I don't know, did he develop it with this movie or is it just his style throughout his career?
2: I think his style throughout his career, he always has been really good at the geography of spaces and finding interesting ways to use them like that, that, that union station or whatever it is in Philadelphia. The, the way he uses that space is just so fascinating. Those long shots of Travolta walking between those uh, concrete kind of poles with the light coming in behind him and the, the way he uses those phone booths and the bath, like he makes use of every single element of that place. And by the end you feel like, okay, I know exactly where everything is, which makes it so much more fun to watch a scene when you're oriented like that. Um,
0: It's really my major criticism of modern movies that the, the use of space, like, you know, where you are, you feel like you're in a real location. Now everything's just a screen and you know, nobody's even in the same room.
1: It's
2: a CGI problem.
1: Yeah. It's a CGI problem for sure.
2: And over editing i think too um which de palma does not do he's he's i mean obviously oh here comes another mention of an underrated de palma movie sure. snake eyes Ugh. but almost all of his movies have one of those shots where we follow in real time a character for you know like angie dickinson and Dress to kill is another one for up to like 10 minutes and a, it makes you trust him as a filmmaker because you're like, oh, the guy's showing me everything. He's not editing away or cutting stuff out. And of course, he isn't showing you everything, and he's manipulating you. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Eric, I
1: know. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, I, <laughs> I'm. T- I, we're talking to one of the biggest Brian De Palma fans I, you know, I probably ever met. But uh, I know the the car- the stroller down the stairs scene. He he took that from the battleship Potemkin, which is a Sergei Einstein movie. I mean, he's admitted this um it's a propaganda communist film by this filmmaker from the 1920s um where that happens where there supposed to be an uprising and i think he's one of those guys that understands film history i know brian de gets kind of knocked as a i don't know hitchcock acolyte and i get that a little bit sometimes i get i got like a hitchcock by way of the subway sewer or something like you get a little bit a little bit of the grime but i just think he seems like a guy that Finds what people have done before him and has figured out ways to contextualize it with his own style, which is, I think, really the sign of a lot of great filmmakers is, you know, what's come before and you pay reference, but then you recontextualize it and make it awesome. Um, yeah, I don't know about specific with this one, but I mean, I love the sense of place as well. It's yeah, it feels real. You know what's happening. You know, the stakes at all times.
0: But hasn't and, yeah. De Palma hasn't even made like a musical too? Like the guy can do any kind of film. Mission we talk Mission Impossible is a De Palma movie. It's insane he a franchise. Um, I
1: don't know if he's done a musical. That would be news to me. But you can you can enlighten us, Chris, if he has.
2: He kind of did a musical, The Phantom of um. The Paradise oh, yeah. is what I. The
0: Phantom of the Phantom Paradise, of Paradise yeah. yeah,
2: is a musical. Um, yeah, and. Uh, I think you're right that he, especially the Hitchcock comparison he used to got dinged on in this movie, you know, I mean, he calls it blowout and it's quite clearly, at least in some way inspired by blowout. So it's not like he's pretending not to, but I think if he came along now um, and we're making movies as exciting as the ones that he made in say the seventies and the eighties, that, that criticism wouldn't be happening because now we're much more familiar with sample culture and how rap music repurposes earlier music and, and gives it fresh context. At the time, it seemed like, Oh, he's an imitator or whatever. But now I think we would say, Oh, you know, he knows his film history and he is smart enough to use it in interesting ways. Like when he does repurpose stuff, obsession, for instance, is practically a remake of Vertigo, but he totally makes it his own. So Sure. Yeah,
0: and, and Tarantino, I mean, his whole career is that it repurposes De Palma to a certain extent, and nobody's really levied that criticism of him.
2: Yeah. yeah, and Tarantino, of course, is a big De Palma fan. Yeah, and Blowout specifically, I think it's one of his ten favorite movies too, actually.
1: Yeah, I man. Well, this is from the trivia last last week, but yeah, the uh, apparently that's one of his desert island movies. If he can only have three movies to watch for the rest of his life, this would be one of the three. Oh, wow. about as high price as you get really
2: it is very rewatchable too you find or at least i find oh, yeah. new stuff every time i watch it I, so i look forward to watching
1: it again where i know what happens now i mean and i kind of was able to tune out of the plot a little bit anyway I mean, i didn't get I, I was way more interested in the style than the substance of the plot but i'd like i look forward to that even more to like all right i can sit back and really know what's going to happen and now i can really soak in all the little choices that are being made and the ambiance and all the little details and all the craziness and start thinking about, oh, yeah, he had to shoot this in and, and crazy ways for this big, long take. And do that even more because that, that gets really, really fun. Um, so I look forward to that. Yeah. Get to really revel in the style and that I know how it plays out.
2: Performance wise, we haven't mentioned Dennis Franz either, who I think is fantastic in the movie as this sort of sleazy. Oh,
1: utter slime ball. Yeah. First rate slime yeah. ball.
2: He's got like two scenes. Blackmailer. Whatever you want to call him. I love that when when we
0: see him, he's got the like tank top with the mustard stains on it, and he's in his apartment, and he's like trying to figure out a way to sit and look cool when Nancy Ellen shows up. It's like what a sleazeball this guy! You so perfect.
2: Yeah, and then let me seduce her with my mustard stains. Right. Yeah, no, it's it's it's
1: great. It it is the pure archetype of here's just like a – it's not New York because it's Philadelphia, but like a big city scumbag slime ball. Just perfect. It's those notes.
0: The thing I didn't catch when I first saw it is like he's actually there when – even when the car hits the water, he's the other guy. If you, you know, Right in the beginning of the movie, when Travolta jumps in, there's another guy behind him. And when I first saw the movie, I was like, wait, why, why don't we ever go back to that guy? And of course, it's Dennis. Free. He was there taking the pictures. But the first time I saw it, I didn't catch that he was standing right next to Travolta when he jumped in the water.
2: Yeah, and he planned for Nancy Allen to die in that scene. Yeah,
1: he, he expects her to die. He didn't expect her to live. And then it was just happenstance that John Travolta was there. Yeah, no, it's, it's like, great.
2: That's know. like is the good guy in that he gives Nancy Ellen like what three more days or something like that before, before the evil f- finishes her off. Well, talking about the bleakness of the movie, the other thing that I think is kind of interesting in the movie about it. Now that I think about it is the politician who does die in the Chappaquiddick like scene, like you could make this movie where he's this bright shining hope for the future of America. And you know, he's, let's say, John Kennedy or whoever who can potentially turn things around for us. And the movie really doesn't do that either. I mean, he's potentially just as bad as anybody else. Uh, we don't know. It's true. Uh, he takes a young
0: woman
1: into a car that he doesn't know, and he's off to. Well,
0: I, and yeah. his advisor tries to cover it up. I mean, his, the the guy that goes to the hospital, he's not trying to find the truth. He knows the truth. He's trying to cover the whole thing up
2: oh i'm sorry to keep doing this but there's another amazing performance john mcmartin is that advisor in the hospital who's kind of wheeling and dealing and he has that great kind of oddly cloudy over voice uh he was an actor who didn't make very many movies actually but uh the way he tries to sort of finesse that scene is so oily and awful and
0: and the so, cop so. too. Travolta's trying. He's trying to tell the cop what happened, and the cop's just not. No, that's not what happened. You know, he wouldn't listen to the whole story. So this movie doesn't really give police much, of,
1: <laughs> much of a shout out either. Yeah, you put you put a lot of good cops away. Well, presumably put bad cops away. He was working like with internal affairs to get corrupt cops right. off the street. So they probably weren't good cops. But yeah, the police chief guy didn't care.
2: Yeah, in a way, I guess the movie is sort of arguing in the end that we wouldn't know the truth if we saw it. Which is pretty
0: prophetic with what you know, not to get too political, but what we've seen in the last few years in our current political system where the truth of what's real, what's not, is seems to be a fungible thing, which is pretty sad.
1: Yeah, that would give this movie a lot of poignancy. I keep thinking like, oh, yeah, this movie's got a lot to say still, even though this came out in 1981. I mean, this feels pretty prescient.
2: Yeah, it's weirdly both ahead of and behind its time. Like, if it had come out three or four years earlier, it probably would have been done better Done better at the theater. It was not a success in theaters. And it probably oh. would have been because it would have been part of that whole Three Days of the Condor wave. Um, or if it had come out later, it probably would have, you know, survived past the point when De Palma was being dinged as a Hitchcock imitator and back when he was in the Carlitos way when his movies were being kind of reappraised. So... It came out at exactly the wrong time, I guess, except for me.
0: If, if he saves her and they catch the bad guys, does that you think that changes the box office history
2: of this movie? Maybe, except, I mean, it didn't open well either, so it's not like word of mouth got out and people said, oh, it's a bummer, which, you know, it is. Um, I, I think, I mean, part of it is maybe what Ben sort of alluded to. It's probably not the movie that people wanted to see John Travolta in at the time. Um, even though I think he's great. Uh, And uh, the reviews probably all, it didn't get great reviews. Pauline Kael loved it, but I don't know that her reviews necessarily translated to box office. And the other reviews I think did say it was kind of derivative and uh, people were sort of over to Palma at the time. I think it sort of hit a bunch of stuff and also hadn't um, John Travolta just come off moment by moment. So he wasn't exactly at uh, the peak of his career either. Um, I mean, he's about to be on the-, the
1: downhill slide until Tarantino revives him, right? Isn't that where we're about to hit the '80s, where his career struggles the most? I mean, I could be no, wrong. I
2: think I think Urban Cowboy is still to come. Okay. If I remember right, we'll have to look at the dates, but sure. but yeah, he's about to head into that period.
1: Very interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, would have been a worse movie, Eric, if they changed the ending. I mean, I you know maybe it would have made uh, maybe it made a few more bucks, but. Yeah, if, the, if it ended happily, I wouldn't have believed it because it sets up such cynical misery the whole time for us to get yeah, that's like, not hey, everything works fine. out. I wouldn't. It wouldn't work with the rest. I mean, I'm all fine with a political thriller that turned out happy and, hey, it's Leonard Bernstein and they they got the yeah, bad guy. Nixon that's didn't fine. get away with it. Yeah. But that's a different movie and you set that up differently and it works differently. It's the movie just is steeped in cynicism and then gives you a, a happy, dappy ending at the end. It just doesn't work. Totally, for me, you know, you gotta have the courage of your conviction, which this movie did. I appreciated it. Endlessly. Yeah, I, it's again.
2: much more. It's much more like the Parallax View, which is similar. I don't know if you guys know that movie, but it's similarly bleak.
1: I've seen Three Days of the Condor, which I recall ending somewhat happy. Um, I mean, not perfectly happy, but they, they he recovers the a conspiracy. Yeah, and and it gets conned out. Um, I haven't seen Parallax View, but it's definitely on the you know ever always growing list of movies I need to see at some point um because i like three days in the condor i don't know that i like political thrills as much as you do but like a a really good thriller is great in the 70s there's a lot of awesome movies in the 70s that marathon man's
0: another one right isn't that kind of in that same vein
2: yep yep less political maybe but yeah i would say that's in that same vein but i highly highly recommend um parallax view which is uh, made by alan j pakula who also made all the president's men warren Beatty's the star of that right Warren Beatty's essentially the John Travolta character in that, and things turn out about as well for him as they do for Travolta.
0: There's a big climax in like an auditorium, right? A big convention center
2: in that movie. There's one. There, there are a couple of big set pieces. There's also one at the top of the Space Needle in um, Seattle. Mm -hmm. Oh man, that's incredible.
0: It's a, it's a really good movie. I, I definitely agree with you.
2: And it's another one that has a great score too, actually. Very, very creepy.
0: Well, um, anything else to say about Blow Up before we move on to you just give a rating on it if if you feel comfortable with that, Chris?
2: Well, whatever you, your top rating is is what I give it. Five, five out of five, five stars. Or max whatever. out. All right. Yeah, wonderful. I
1: figured if it's your favorite, your favorite movie yeah. of all time, it's gonna be five out of five. If this isn't a five out of five, then I guess you just don't give five out of five, you know?
2: I don't give many, but I would give this one that. Yeah.
1: Sure. Okay. Eric, do you want to go next, or should I hop in?
2: I gave it four and a half.
0: I actually, it, you, you mentioned the kind of changing how you reviewed it. So I, I look back at my, when I first reviewed it, same four to five. And so it didn't change for me. I think it's really um, you almost perfect. I, I don't so much like the Dark Cynical endings as, as maybe... Ben would would understand. And I
1: tend to to yeah, disagree on endings. Nan- and
0: and you know I mentioned my Nancy Allen take. Maybe that's a bad take. I don't know. I, I she kind of bugged me in this movie. Um, so I guess I ding it a half star. So four and a half is where I would put it.
1: Um, for slightly different reasons, but I, I'm also to four and a half. And it's movie. My opinion could definitely change a half star. Um, it's really just the Ben Lewis doesn't love John Travolta tax and maybe his performance would grow on me i don't know i mean i feel like the direction's superb it's not a problem he doesn't make the movie bad or anything but i don't know really, that i don't feel like he makes the movie great either it's just the direction's so incredible uh that it works really really well in spite of john travolta and again i, I could change my mind I, I might i probably will enjoy it more a second time
0: who, who, who should be in it who like Pick an actor then that you think would be better than Travolta. See, this
1: is if I'm gonna, ha- I have to think about all the actors that were working in 1981 around. Boys, John Warren,
0: Warren Beatty, or you know, um, it's
1: got to be a younger I mean, that, person. Yeah, you definitely want to be somebody young who's working, you know, on really. Redford, is Redford, better in this, you think? No, he's too big of a star for sure. Too big of a star.
2: Uh, okay. Well, the guy in the time period who always lost out to role to Travolta for roles is Richard Gere. So he certainly would have been a, a possibility. That's interesting.
1: Okay. I think about it, but I mean, I would be fine if they just found some really, I mean, to me, if they had some really no name actor, I, I think Brian De Palma would have been able to get just as good a performance out of them. Um, or, or even if it was just some character actor that isn't a star and he probably had to get a star to make the movie. I understand that there's limitations and you know, studios want you to have stars so people will come and see the movie, but uh, it might have worked better with the the right sort of character actor in the lead because um, i don't think it needed a movie star but again this is really trivial it, it's, it's not tape. even that pro- it's not even a problem it's just i keep thinking uh john travolta i don't know and he's got his own weird quirks that i'm probably bringing in as well which makes me not love him as a human being but that's not the movie's fault. So anyway, it's, it's incredible. So
0: Scientology, is that what you're bringing in? Like, you didn't like, you didn't like him in 81 because of Scientology?
1: I didn't say anything about Scientology. Well,
0: you kind of
1: insinuated. You didn't Uncut jams because Glenn Taylor ruined the Kevin Garnett situation. That's, so
2: that's the truth. <laughs>
1: Glenn Taylor
2: I will say that in 1981, we weren't as aware of other things about John Travolta as we are now. So it probably is hard to watch the movie without subsequent. uh,
1: If I see it a second time, I think, I don't care. John Travolta is great or the movie is so good that uh, John Travolta doesn't even matter. I mean, this is really, really a minor nitpick. Even though he's in the movie a lot, the direction is so wonderful all the time. It's great. Um, So, again, I could change my mind. I don't want to make it sound like it's a problem at all to anybody. You should see, you should see blow up. It's great. It's on Amazon. take. Thank you. I am. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're standing by it. I, that's one thing. I, you got the courage now. I like it. Okay. Will come. Um. Okay. So next thing we play this game, this five degree of field of dreams, kind of Kevin Bacon, kind of game. Uh, Chris, do you want to participate, or should we just jump in and give ours? It, we really just use it as a chance to talk about some other movies. So,
2: um, well, I th- yeah, I don't know. My I can think of one, but it might take us there too fast. So I don't know. You that's might not cool. Like have, that. That's the trick. That's
1: yeah. the problem. Is your brain wants to do it as efficiently as possible? I have that problem all the time. I'm like, oh no, I have to take a, a detour to get there. Well, yeah,
0: I, I can just give mine if if you it, if that's fine with you. Uh, so I I went blowout stars Dennis Franz who's just an animal in this movie. It does star uh, Dennis Franz for sure. Or he's in it. He does. It doesn't star him. So he's one of the le- the uh, sort of side characters. He's he's actually in a bunch of De Palma movies. What I tried to do was do st- all De Palma movies, and I got hung up on jumping from a De Palma movie to Field of Dreams. I couldn't do it. I spent like an hour. Trying to find an actor that's in a De Palma movie and and also in Field Dreams couldn't do it, so I had to, I had to take a little detour, but um, mostly De Palma movies. So Body Double also has Dennis Franz in it. Uh, Melanie Griffith Griffith is in that as well. She's in Bonfires Vanities, which was I guess a huge bomb, right? A De Palma bomb didn't make any money. Uh, and then so then I had to take the detour. I took Tom Hanks. He's in Sleepless in Seattle with Gabby Hoffman, and she's in Field of Dreams. So I couldn't get all the all the De Palma movies, but I
1: tried. All right, I will jump in. And uh, so I, it bothered me. I had this problem. Like, what do I know Nancy Allen from? Like, what? There's one movie in particular. Oh yeah, it's brilliant. And then it was like I had to look afterwards. Like, oh RoboCop. RoboCop okay. for sure. Yeah, yeah Peter RoboCop. Waller's partner in RoboCop. Oh my gosh. Okay, that's that's who Nancy Allen is. Okay. I mean, I've seen Probably her other like stuff too. Say Carrie. No, I see, and I haven't seen Carrie in a long time. Um,
0: oh. Also, it, Travolta's also in Carrie. Like, he, all, De Palma worked with a lot of these people. It, Nancy Allen is in almost all of his movies. Well, yeah,
1: they, they were married. married. Yep. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah, man, I saw that, and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes some sense. They were, yeah. Um, but anyway, so, I was like, all right, I, I want to go take a route to get to Nancy. Start with Nancy Allen. And I. Nancy Allen's in 1941, and I, I put that one in there mostly for Eric and I. We, we had dreams one day of possibly doing a great director, bad movie podcast where we pick like the worst movie from director And 1941 is by far Spielberg's worst movie. It's baffling and confusing. I don't get 1941. It's such a weird, weird collection of scenes and just, it just doesn't work. Um, But Christopher Lee's in 1941 Um, and Christopher Lee was in uh, airport 77. You know, the disaster trend was part of the seventies. That was the third one in the series. Um, and it had some older stars in it, uh, Jimmy Stewart and Joseph Cotton. Joseph Cotton was in Twilight's Last Gleam with Burt Lancaster, a movie I've never seen having to do with them trying to get the truth about how the government, U.S. government, knew Vietnam was not going to work, but they were doing it anyway. They could do the war anyway, and there's a nuclear reactor involved. So it's kind of a weird political thriller. Also, um, but Burt Lancaster's in that, and Burt Lancaster's in Field the Drips.
2: It's my route. Uh, Mine was um, John Lithgow is in The Day After with Amy Madigan, who is in Field of Dreams. So mine goes way too quickly. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, that's, that's the way to do it. Super efficient. Uh, okay, so last thing here, just kind of uh, introducing what movie we'll be doing next week. Uh, this is a movie I picked, so uh, uh, no guests next week. But um, So I'll give basically five clues. If you know it, just shout out, Chris. Uh, I'm sure you'll probably get it. Um, But uh, here we go. So clue number one, there's a reference to Tiger Woods in this movie. Probably not going to do it. Um, Number two, the main character is a photographer in Brooklyn, New York. All right. Number three. Uh, the film originally had a much darker ending than the one that was released theatrically. Alright, number four. The star of the film came to fame in a Black Mirror episode.
1: Pretty recent. I mean, we're doing one the last few years. Um, I got nothing.
0: All right. Clue number five. This uh, maybe you will give it away. I don't know. The writer director won best original screenplay for this movie at the Academy Awards.
1: At the most recent Academy Awards that featured The Slapper, uh, or? uh
0: in, I think it was 2018.
1: Okay. Best original screenplay I I mean I'm stumped. Um.
2: Yeah, me too. Oh, uh, wait, would that have been Spike Lee? No.
0: The movie came out in 2017, but it was the 2018 Oscars.
2: Right, okay. Yeah, I don't think I know.
0: Um, Let me see if I can give another clue. Uh... There's a reference to it. A teacup? A teacup plays a big
1: part in the movie. Oh, uh, now it's gonna. Now I got it. I just now I can't. Um... Jordan Peele's first movie. I can't think of the name. Oh, um, Get Out? Get Out. There get we go.
0: Out is correct. That's the movie we're doing next week. Um, oh. Jordan Peele's got another movie coming out. Nope. Comes out in July. So about the time that this will be. Airing when you're listening to this, Nope will probably be out, maybe almost coming out. So I thought it'd be great to revisit his first movie, Get Out. <sighs> but that's it. I just a special thanks, Chris Hewitt, so much for joining. We really appreciate it. Anything else you want to chat about? About Blowout? About your your work? About Get Out? About anything?
2: No, just I hope uh, people will. Seek out, blow out, and, and watch it because it's a uh, even though it's one of those movies that a lot of people will say is their favorite movie, I still don't think it's a very well-known commodity, and it should be.
1: No, it's really not. I mean, I, I know my demographic. I don't know that in my circle of, you know, I'm going to put this in quotes, movie geeks. I don't think this is one we watched or talked about or remember it being a big deal to anybody, and it feels like it should have been a bigger deal.
0: Yeah, it's, I think I mentioned Amazon Prime is where I saw it. Yeah, if you want to yeah.
1: stream it. If you have Prime, it's free to stream.
2: And if people, uh, this will um, typecast me as older, but uh, if people still like physical media, Criterion Collection has a great uh, edition of it.
0: Are there any great bonus features on that, like behind the scenes things or anything like that?
2: There are, uh, there are a few bonus features. What would be great is if the... Did you guys watch the Noah Bambach, uh, De Palma documentary that's essentially just interviews with Doc, uh, De Palma about his movies and clips to illustrate what he's talking about?
1: No, I've never even heard of that. that it's been cool. on my list.
0: I think it was, on, was it on Netflix for a while or maybe Amazon. It's on one of the streamers. It's been on my list
2: to watch. It's It's fascinating and for the clips alone actually it's fascinating just to see him talking about what he was trying to do and um but anyway i wish that were a bonus feature on this disc it's not unfortunately but it could be your own bonus feature sure awesome
0: well super so again super thanks uh Thank you, So folks can find startribune.com they can read your reviews rotten tomatoes yep. is there a, you know social media kind of place that folks should check you out as well
2: um, uh, my Twitter handle is Hewitt Strib, so H E W I T T S T R I B. Uh, and that's it, I guess.
0: Yeah. So read read Chris's reviews, check his stuff out. R- amazing film critic, and we're super grateful that you we're joined very us. Very lucky to
1: have him. It was awesome.
0: It was nice to chat with you guys. All right. Well, uh, everybody, take it easy. Thanks again for listening, and uh, have a great day. Bye bye.
2: Thank you.